This is Gil Manser, welcoming you to North Bay Public Media's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers on KRCB-FM. We are in for a special treat on today's show where the conversation is with Lori R. King, the award-winning creator of the fictional San Francisco police detective Kate Martinelli, and the Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes mystery series, which started in 1994 with The Beekeeper's Apprentice. A dozen novels later, her new Russell Holmes mystery, Dreaming Spies, was just released to glowing reviews. Laurie R. King earned a degree in comparative religion from the University of Santa Cruz and a master's in theology from the Graduate Theological Union, and her thesis was on feminine aspects of Yahweh. She later received an honorary doctorate from the Church Divinity School of the Pacific. We've talked about King's books about Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes, and then also Kate Martinelli, the fictional lesbian police officer. Using the pseudonym Lee Richards, she has published a futuristic novel as well called Calafia's Daughters. She has won many awards, the John Creasy Memorial Award, the Edgar Award, the Nero Award, uh, the McCavity, the Lambda, etc., etc. And you're going on, I hope, two more, because you're nominated for more, aren't you? Oh, I hope. I hope. I I sincerely know you will. I know. You're just like your mantelpiece after the Oscars, right? I'm hoping that collapses under the weight. Well, I want to welcome Lori R. King to Word by Word. Thank you. So let's start with uh, The Beekeeper's Apprentice, 1994. Now, there is, for the for our listeners who may not know this, a uh, subgenre of Sherlock Holmes stories that were not written by Arthur Conan Doyle, that continue on after Doyle stopped, you know, writing them, and then have been in, you know, short story collections, a lot of mystery, you know, those mysteries, um, dime novel kinds of things that were done in the 20s and 30s. And then uh, more recently, full-length, full-fledged novels, creating new characters, building old characters, building on previous cases. So what struck you? Why did you decide that... uh, we had to have Mary Russell under the picture. Most of those that you are talking about are um, are what they call pastiches. That mm-hmm. is, you take um, someone's characters, um, you give them an adventure that the original author had not thought of or would not have thought of. Um, you then dust them off and you put them back in place. Well, I decided that I wasn't going to do that. For one thing, these are not so much Sherlock Holmes stories as they are Mary Russell stories. Right. Although Russell is a very similar kind of person. She is what Sherlock Holmes would be if he were young, female, 20th century um, instead of a Victorian male. Right. So having said that they are um, – Mary Russell stories. At the same time, it's always more interesting to put two similar things next to each other so you can compare them, Mm -hmm. contrast them, and Mm -hmm. see what they do and if they explode when they get too close to each other. (laughs) And and so I decided that what I would do would make her um, this this very Sherlockian type of mind to make her an apprentice of the great man, which was easy enough to do chronologically because Conan Doyle finishes with Holmes in 1914 at the edge of the Great War, Mm -hmm. August 1914, 
he has his last Sherlock Holmes story. He went on to write a few more, but they were all set earlier. Mm-hmm. So he is um, incapable of seeing Holmes as a person of the 20th century, of the post-war era in England, which indeed saw huge changes in society, in the economics of the world, in the morality of public life. And Conan Doyle could never get his head around the idea of Holmes as a man of the teens and 20s. Mm -hmm. Well, that left it open to me um, because he is still (laughs) a relatively young man. And um, yet he is susceptible to the kind of change that comes after someone has been uh, through a traumatic situation, that is, the Great War. So in the midst of this, he meets um, this young woman who uh, promptly um, insults him, outthinks him, and wins his heart, you see. <laughs> well, she's quite young. She's only yeah. 15. She's she recently 15. become an orphan. She's yeah. living with her in the United States, San Francisco, as I recall. Yeah. And uh, comes to Sussex, is that right? Yes. Conan Doyle says that Holmes retired to the Sussex Downs where he kept bees. And um, uh, there aren't too many pieces of information about what that retirement um, looked like. So, again, doors wide open for Laurie King to come in and stomp all over it with her big feet. Um, So... Russell walks into him, literally, on the downs. While reading um, a book, as I remember. While reading yes. a book, a typical situation for her. And um, he sees the potential for um, for training her and takes her on as his apprentice. Um, throughout the first book, that is the only status that she achieves is that he, she, uh, apprentice and He is her mentor partner. then, right? right? Right. Yes. The latter half of the book, he is her partner um, in the detecting world. Mm -hmm. But for a number of reasons, um, the relationship goes on from there as she gets older. And it's partly because um, that really is the only logical direction where that relationship can go is a full partnership in all ways. Mm -hmm. But also it's a reflection of life in Britain in that post-war era. If you have wiped out entire villages, if you have reduced most of the young male population to a state of jittering nerves, um, it means that the normal – the normal field that a, of of um, prospects that a young woman would would consider had to be expanded. Right. Um, so, as far as Russell is concerned, age has much less to do with matters than um, than w- what is between his his ears. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's 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 where we have gone over the last. 12, 13 books. Well, my understanding is if I were Sherlock at that time and I had built my reputation about, a, you know, a lot of arcane information about, you know, where the numbers, the, the lengths of cigar ashes and where you could obtain certain cigars from certain parts of the world within the London environment, that's not there anymore. Since the war, those things are all messed up. So your uh, carefully constructed... Artifice 
has descended around your ears. Yes. The the London um, world that he knew mm-hmm. uh, in in the Gaslight era has changed drastically. And in fact, it it's, it's interesting to look a little more deeply into the whole business of where Conan Doyle got his ideas about – um, identifying someone's trade by their hands, mm-hmm. their calluses, mm-hmm. how they button their jacket, um, the tattoos that they wear. Uh, one of his instructors at uh, medical school was a, was a man named Joseph Bell, right. whose method of diagnosis was based on the same kinds of um, techniques that Holmes uses. Mm-hmm. That is, he takes a look at somebody, looks at all the very small, the stains on their hands, the small scars, the way they stand, the voice, and can tell a great deal about him. Um, in a changing world, when, especially if you, as you start moving away from uh, physical crafts to a more mechanized world, you're dropping an awful lot of those uh, distinctive characteristics of mm-hmm. how one's trade imprints itself on the body. And the fact that, you know, that you've got such a wide choice of where you can get your clothing, for instance, now. Yeah, just that, that and that would throw him off because he couldn't tell which tailor where it was or, in fact, whether it was even made in this country. Oh, I think he could. Probably. Oh, you think he could. Uh, you think, you yeah, sure yeah, he yeah. could. <laughs> now, so what he starts teaching Russell um, – Observational techniques, uh, much along the lines that you remember the Rudyard Kipling book Kim, where he's trained for the the great game, and he's you know given this tray. You remember this story, the tray of materials that's all covered up, and then they cover it up again and say, "Okay, what was not there?" Yes, yeah, and that kind of adventure then leads on to real life crimes. Needless to say, we're going to have to have murderous crimes because uh, this first one is I'm trying to remember back. It's been a while. Uh, involved uh, some relative of Moriarty. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Not to do too many spoilers, but yes. Um, the Beekeeper's Apprentice was the first one. And there, that one is really a sort of coming-of-age story of Mary Russell. Mm-hmm. So that it is, a, it is an episodic novel. Um, they have a number of increasingly difficult and um, dangerous cases that they work up to. And um, and indeed, one of them brings a brings a character from Holmes's past into the the present that the two of them have tried to construct. Mm-hmm. Now you jump forward a little bit or jump around, which is one of the things I enjoyed about this latest book. Is we start at one time and then we go back a year to another time to another adventure, and then come back into that first time period again. And there's references. You know, to the two trips that were taken and cases that were solved in previous books, and also some references to cases and activities that haven't occurred yet. At least I'm not aware of them. Is that correct? Have you laid down these uh, little potential future plots? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I, you know, backing around the ba- back of my head. Um, yeah. Part of the problem was that um, an awful lot of the books of the previous 12 books, an awful lot of them have taken place inside of one calendar year, Mm -hmm. that of 1924. Mm -hmm. And um, I I suppose it's partly because Holmes is not really getting any younger. And so if you have 
him appear every three years in a case. He's pretty soon going to be 90. And it's much easier to wear him out rather than let the, let him age out, right? <laughs> so so I ha- if I had eight, eight books in that 1924, I managed in the last one, which is called Garment of Shadows, to get out of 1924 and into the early days of 1925. Yay! <laughs> right. <laughs> However... Um, they had well. It's spring in 1925 because, yeah. as I remember, there's an important event that occurs in the spring in their garden. Yes, but um, the I had I had already moved the chronology of the series up past the Japan date mm-hmm. because the Japan date is already given. It was when they were traveling from India, where they met right. indeed right. the originator of the Kim, Kim game, and. Um, and then headed to California. So they hit Japan in the spring of 1924, and I couldn't change that. But rather than just write a flashback book, I decided I would write a book that was set partly at that time in 1924. And they thought they had solved the case. Um, And in fact, they kind of hadn't completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a year later, when they return um, to, to That's a nice England. way to put that. I liked how you did that. Yeah. I'll be very careful not to give away any any uh, yeah. important clues about dreaming spies. Well, it's. I think an awful lot of it is known, so it's okay. But, um, but I, th- I think that the way of spanning the 24 and 25 is to have a case that's based around an object that um, that plays a, an important role in Japan, but yet follows them in a way to England a year later. Is this a real That's, object? Is it was there actually a gift given to the King of England? No, no. There may have been. Uh, I these are these are written as Mary Russell's memoirs. Right. So well, yes. As okay. as the literary agent and editor of Mary Russell, um, I I cannot disprove the existence of this particular book. Well, you're a sworn secret member of the Baker Street Irregulars, isn't that correct? <laughs> so you're not allowed to. Absolutely. He's a real person, right? Just like uh, <laughs> Steve Hawkinsmith writes about this real person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about the, the next uh, couple, of, a couple of books that actually go back to the beekeeping. You had, let's see if I remember right here, I'm checking them. Uh, Language of Bees and God of the Hive, which right. came out in 2009, 2010. Mm. So though they're, you know, quite a bit later in the, the series, they're really talking about some of the events of the same beekeeping time. This is this 1924 time. Is that right? Yeah. I am. Um, yes. I think they're both set in 24. Right. And you and there's where you bring in your, your experience in religious studies because you come up with this circle of light cult and you go and visit... Uh, a variety of uh, uh, ancient temples, prehistoric sites of importance. Yeah, the my my background in religion and theology probably sneaks into maybe a third or a half of the books mm-hmm. um, that I've done. Some of the Russells and some of the Martinellis, and it, it's. It's not a not a theme that appears in all the books, but in some of them it seems appropriate. Um, so yeah, in these particular two, um, the bee imagery ties in very strongly to not only the idea of a, a kind of hive mentality, mm-hmm. but um, Holmes's own past 
and how he he sort of sublimates his um his interest in human beings in his interest in bees once he retires. Well, this is one of the things that I think all of you readers will probably find fascinating is that Holmes was, to most people's mind, a confirmed bachelor, except for maybe there was this uh, one woman along the way. um, Irene Irene Adler, Adler, right, uh, who managed to slip through his defenses and capture his time and attention. If not his heart. Well, Watson would have said not his heart. And um, he Yeah, but he Watson was, was going to be kicked out if his heart was gone. Because <laughs> in Watson's mind, I mean, at least from my analysis of it, is that uh, he, he hoped that uh, Sherlock's heart was filled with him. It 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 would have been awkward to have um, another person in there, mm-hmm. but I, I think but he gets married. Watson gets married at least once, if yes. not several times. Right. There's much debate about how many times he gets. I married. I thought it was three, but uh, yeah, well, it yes. depends on which you know stream of post yes. Doyle uh, reading you've done. Yes, um, the the interesting thing from my point of view of the Mary Russell character mm-hmm. is that Holmes is greatly impressed by Irene Adler, not because she's pretty, not because she can sing, but because she gets the better of him. Mm-hmm. Um, she outsmarts him um, all the way through this case that he's working where he's he's trying to get um, something back from her. Right. And Retrieve something from her. Yes. Yes. And it, it turns out that he has not only misjudged her morals, but misjudged her abilities. And Well, she is, after all, a woman. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I've never thought that Holmes was particularly misogynistic. I think he just doesn't like anybody. <laughs> That may be true. You know, yes. he's he's a little paternal towards a lot of women. The housekeeper. But he is a Victorian. Yeah. Yes, And right. that tended to be pretty much the Victorian attitude. But it, it he didn't seem to dislike women any more than he did most men. Um, and when time came to to sort of explore, I guess, the relationship between – um, Holmes and this young apprentice of his, Mary Russell. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that he had been very impressed with with the ability of um, of Irene Adler made, for to my mind, made it obvious that this was the primary thing he would look for in a mate was somebody who could outsmart him. Um, so, therefore, the first thing that Russell does is. First outsmart him and, and then insult him, which mm. it works. Mm-hmm. It's a great aphrodisiac for many men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially powerful men who, you know, surgeon types who are above it all, right? <laughs> so we are, let's go forward to Dreaming Spies, your latest uh, book, which we've, we've set up a little bit. Um, they're, they are, leave, have left India or leaving India. This, the, um, shall we not, shall we skip over the beginning? That's really yeah. Doesn't we'll, we'll get on the ship it's, real fast. Fast. Uh, they're on a uh, tramp steamer kind of thing that has some passengers on board, but stops at ports along the way to unload and offload cargo. 
Have you been on one of these to as no. research? No. Well, I've I've I went down and talked to the guy who um, who is the information officer on the Queen Mary, mm-hmm. um, who was extremely helpful and valuable. And not that the Queen Mary had anything to do with the the fictional Thomas Carlyle that Russell and Holmes are on, right? But um, it it gave me a sense of how the community on board a ship works. And of course, m- most of those ships, such as the Queen Mary, were built for um, cross-Atlantic passage. And the, the, that community only lasted five to eight days, mm-hmm. depending on the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, this one would be much longer. And indeed, most of the, um, most of the steamers that didn't have to do with Atlantic crossings um, were, were very different from the Queen Mary. Right. But there were, there's a lot of books um, – it's the sort of thing that anyone who um, who takes a round-the-world um, voyage in the 20s has to write a book about it. And, Most did, I uh, think, Yes. Yeah. And similarly, anyone who went to Japan in the early 20th century, uh, whether it was the wife of an ambassador or a general who was sent there after the giant earthquake that devastated um, Tokyo – in 1924, 23. 23, yeah. Um, Everyone wrote a book about it, which from a research point of view is great because it means that there is the immediacy that you get with memoirs and letters. Um, And the point of view of someone from a different culture. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, most most of the research that I've done on this one is uh, – well, I went to Japan, but a, a lot of the Well, the good. Shipboard. I'm glad you did research <laughs> by going to – and yeah. visiting the, the hot springs along the way and walking the path and yeah. seeing I, the, the I rarely write about a place that I haven't been to. Right. Um, so – Can I read about shipboard travel or have you read it from uh, Chapter 10? How far? Well, it's marked. There's an orange tag, and then it's a little ways. Do you mind? Not too bad. Shipboard travel is always a compromise, even for those fortunate souls immune to gastric distress. Deck cabins have a window permitting fresh air and a minimum minimum of smells from the engine and the kitchen, and even in rough weather, the window can be left open. Unlike the poor, benighted souls below whose portholes must be screwed shut when the seas rise. On the other hand, having the promenade deck just outside one's room inflicts the constant noises of travelers at play, strolling, playing quoits or cards, scolding children, or, worse by far, carrying on shipboard flirtations. I have at times fallen back on the suites designed for the very rich— but the nerve-grating habits of the neighbors tend to drive me back down to the realms of the lower classes. In any event, our neighbors this time would have been the Darleys, who in such close quarters could not have failed to notice Holmes's glowers. The solution is bribery. Lavish applications of cash can shift one's quarters to the cooler side, arrange for tablemates who are interesting or lacking that taciturn, and even lead to the rearrangement of the deck's fixtures to create an obstacle outside of one's windows. Once or twice I've managed to shut the deck outside my rooms entirely, ensuring a degree of peace while forcing promenaders <coughs> pardon me, promenaders to bounce back and forth and back again, frustrated from completion of their endless circuits. We didn't manage that this time, although we did, thanks to a combination of cold cash and a fulsome letter from a high-ranking Indian authority, 
ruthlessly supplant a previous reservation and take over a large, airy, relatively quiet promenade deck suite with a more or less functional electrical fan located precisely halfway along the ship's length to ensure optimal steadiness. Although I still spent most daylight hours out of doors, the seas were generally calm enough that most nights I could retreat from my bunk for a few hours. This was the case as we worked our way down the Malacca Straits. I brushed my teeth, made sure the window was as wide open as it got, directed the fan, and stripped the bedclothes down to a single sheet. Having checked that my thermos jug had been filled with ice water and that my clock, torch, water glass, and throwing knife were on the little table, I climbed into bed. After a few pages, I switched out the light. I love her bedside uh, accoutrement. Doesn't everyone have a throwing knife no, on their bed? Or, or a, a snub-nosed revolver or something, right? <laughs> yeah. So we've got uh, Dreaming Spies. We're on board a ship, both, uh, but they're kind of uh, – they're, they're traveling under um, different identities. Holmes, at least, is referred to as – Robert Holmes. Robert. He, no, he's no, no, Robert. No, no, no. He's Robert Russell. Robert Russell. Sorry, yes, yes, Robert Russell. Russell. Yes, he's so. Bobby Russell, which mm. is, which is an interesting character because he gets to do that one. What thing that remember that Holmes loves to put on disguises and pretend to be someone else, and he does that here because yeah. he's seen. He's sure someone who came on board is a blackmailer, and he detests blackmailers. He does. So it's it's worth having to act as a. Sugar daddy to young young Mary Russell. Well, there's quite an age difference. Let's see. I, she was 15. He was 54 when they met. So this is now how many years later? It's Ten. almost 40 years difference. Anyway. Yeah, right. Long time. So May, December to be polite. March, right? December. <laughs> <laughs> okay, March, December. <laughs> Um, however, of course, he's still, you know, active and fit, and his brain is the, is top notch, and they they uh, entertain each other with a variety of uh, mental gymnastics to make sure that they will, and and physical gymnastics to make sure they will keep their edges correct. They do, yes. Except that, of course, Mary does not really like traveling on a ship. It's a problem for um, for the twenties because, having established that she gets seasick, um, she does seem to travel an awful lot, <laughs> which which has sort of condemned her to many queasy thoughts and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and long hours on the decks. Yeah, she was better on the camel, as I remember. Yes, yes so. yeah. She's a, she's she's certainly an adventurous person. So um, we're on board. We have uh, these uh, nefarious. Uh, Family who's come on board the the uh, husband and new wife, younger wife, and uh, the son of the first wife at married, and um, they're all looking suspicious as heck, and uh, they're and so Holmes and uh, Mary Russell break into their rooms and try to find something. That's some one does. Well, of course, because you're looking for evidence of some kind of, and along the way, there's a mysterious disappearance of someone who they saw come on board, but no one has seen since. Except there may be that late night ghost that people are talking about might be this missing person. Right? One never knows. One never knows. I'm not going to tell our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Spoilers. No, no, no. (laughs) Not that. So one of the other people who comes on board is a a young, very, very young looking 
a Japanese girl. Girl? Can we call her a girl, I guess? Young woman. Uh, but she looks a lot younger. She looks about 15, surprisingly, to, to Mary Holmes. Mary is sitting on her deck reading, and someone uh, interrupts her and said, you did not hear the bell miss, and she turns around, and it is, in fact, a woman who barely comes up to Mary's chin, and she says, Haruki Sato. Is that correct? Mm. Okay, is it Sato or Sato? Sato. Sato. She said, giving a slight emphasis to, I go to Kobe. Am I right think, thinking that in Japan you would be known as Seito Haruki? Her face lights up because this is nice that someone knows that. So they go on and they talk about a while. And then she asks, um, what does your family do? Uh, I do not think you would ever guess the nature of my family's employment, she says. Why don't you start right there and go to where the orange stop is. You're probably right. The possibilities were extensive, given what little I knew of Japanese society. Rickshaw runners, bamboo farmers, ninja assassins, pearl divers, octopus fishermen. She leaned towards me a little. If I say, will you promise not to tell the others? If it become known, it would be distracting for me. Oh, heavens, she was from a long line of geisha. Very well. We have been acrobats. For generations, my family performed for the royalty of Japan, juggling tight-wire tight walking gymnastics. My grandmother was the Emperor Meiji's favorite contortionist. I was delighted. I'd never met a professional acrobat before. How superb! What is your specialty? Oh, sorry, all that is the past. You see, when I was small, my father fell from a wire. He was a famous gesture, you understand? Like, you know Harold Lloyd? It took me a moment to identify the name with its trans transposed R's and L's, but who didn't know Harold Lloyd's character with the round glasses dangling from extraordinary situations and snatching victory from precarious perches? I nodded. Father would fool on the high wire and do silly jokes. Stunts? Yes, stunts. His Majesty the Meiji Emperor laughed very hard at him. Father was so proud, and then he fell. He near to died, but his majesty sent his own doctors, and he did not die, and his majesty sent his anma, massage man? Masur. Yes, masur. With them, father learned, to, learned again to walk, but he could not work, and more, it made him look at what he wished for his children. He decided to move us away from the um, uncertainties of life as an acrobat. He retired to the family ryokan, the inn of the traditional sort with hot springs. When his uncle died, father became its owner. Ah, perfect. This is time for a break. You are listening to North Bay Public Media's Word-by-Word -word Conversations with Writers on KRCB-FM. We are having a conversational treat on today's show where our guest is Laurie R. King, the Edgar Nero McCavity and Lambda Award-winning creator of the fictional San Francisco police detective Kate Martinelli, and the Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes mystery series, which started in 1994 with The Beekeeper's Apprentice. A dozen novels later, her new Russell Holmes mystery is Dreaming Spies, and it was just released to glowing reviews. So let's get back and hear more about this new book. Okay, so we have uh, met several people on board. Um, they're kind of trapped on the ships for how long? Ten days? 
I think it's three weeks. Three weeks. It's 20, 21 or 23 okay. days. All right. And they stop occasionally at ports and people get on and some people get off and some people stay on and some people, you know, search through staterooms when they stay on. <laughs> and um, all kinds of events happen on board ship, which I'll let the readers find out. Uh, but then they arrive in Japan and the young woman kind of takes uh, Mary and Sherlock under her wing, so to speak, and sets up an itinerary for them. And it's for a purpose, which we will probably not tell what the purpose is because oh, she's very not. she's very circumspect about why anyone would want to go through this. But she has been giving these classes on board the ship to whoever will come and listen um, about quite a variety of, of subjects, how Japanese women dress, how uh, there, there's all these questions about this, you know, these hot tub, hot springs, mixed bathing kinds of things. The geisha is, got very widely attended with lots of men coming in to hear about that. The tea ceremony was uh, less well um, attended. And there was uh, some some huge <clears throat> when she criticized English tea, which of course is not English, but whatever. Uh, that black tea stuff, you know, that, that they list, that they with drink. With milk in with it. With milk and, yes, yes and, or lemon or something weird like that. So, uh, and several other um, activities. One thing that I found really interesting was about this, the, the little bit about Japanese architecture and why it was designed the way it was. Can you share some of that? Yeah, the whole, what we would call post and beam architecture mm-hmm. um, is, is, based on the need for a house that doesn't crumble in an earthquake because as we have recently had illustrated, um, Japan is constantly moving. And the problem is that when you have um, a solid building, it, it doesn't react well to a moving earth. It was like in Santa Cruz, the buildings that fell apart in the 89 quake were the old brick buildings. Right. Watsonville even more. Yeah. Yeah. So the post and beam construction is based on um, a a sort of um, framework that will shift and from it hang walls and from it on it lay floors. Mm-hmm. But the the building itself will take a great deal of um, of ups and downs before it collapses. Mm-hmm. So uh, fire is a much bigger hazard in in Japanese houses. Well, that's really what destroyed Tokyo in yeah. the big earthquake, just like yeah. San Francisco in yeah. the big earthquake. But the so so the idea of having a house that has to shift. Um, gives rise to all of these different aspects of life. For example, your house is going to be cold mm-hmm. because if you're if the only solid bits are the, the beams and the posts, it means that the walls are going to be cold, mm-hmm. which changes the kind of clothing that you need. Um, and the many, many layers are, are necessary. Well, you don't want to have gas inside. pipes running around in an you earthquake-prone can't. country, no. Um, Similarly, the floors. If you have a floor that is um, light and portable and can be taken apart for cleaning, which at the time 
was required by government law mm -hmm. that once a year you take your house apart. They were in panels it. that lifted up yeah, with, with yeah. The little hooks. All, yeah. all houses had to be pulled apart and cleaned. Um, it means that the floors are vulnerable to wear. So you start getting um, this. You, you can't have furniture if you have soft floors. You... Don't wear shoes in because straw is something that is, is much more. You have the more. tatami mats down. Yes. Right. The tatami mats are, are both soft and, and clean, mm -hmm. and you don't, you don't wear your muddy shoes in. So an entire um, culture has sprung up around the fact that houses fall apart in earthquakes. Right. And, of course, there was the sliding shoji screen walls, which are, you know, expand and contract, but sound travels through quite yes. easily. Uh, light comes through as well, so the interior rooms of the house can be lighted during the day from outside light because you don't want to have a lot of open flames going on in these tinderbox dry, you know, paper and, and wood houses. Right. And uh, so the women also, this also affects the dress, which I thought was fascinating to read about when uh, when Mary has to dress up in a traditional Japanese and she's wrapped in I don't know how many thousand yards of fabric and a big obi that keeps her standing up straight and et cetera, et cetera. And, and understands why people now kneel down because you can't sit in them. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we had um, at the launch party last night in Santa Cruz, mm -hmm. um, I had one of my one of my readers decided to wear um, her Japanese kimono with complete obi and everything else. Mm -hmm. And she said that she had to she had to say she was very impressed that Russell could manage to walk in that because they because they are so snugly wrapped around you, it forces you to take small steps, mm -hmm. which is not really part of Russell's personality. Well, was she? I can't remember. Was she wearing those uh, platform shoes that kept the people above the, the yeah. night soil? Yeah, and the... they 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 wear the, the clogs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, she was Gita. she was constantly slipping out of um, the tabbies. Yes. Yes, because you can't wear the shoes in the house, right. and then she, you know, as soon as you come to some other place, you put the shoes on, go two steps outside, and then you put the take them off, and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> which she found uh, to be quite uh, entertaining. Right? Yes. yes. <laughs> she also noticed uh, a significant difference in that everybody in the country seemed busy, in contrast to England at the time, and America, obviously, when she was younger. Was that true when you visited us still? The, it's kind of a cliche of the industrious and Japanese, but it's when, when you read the... Um, accounts of people who travel through Japan in the 20s and 30s. This is something that almost every one of them says, mm -hmm. is how impressed they are that everyone seems to be working, um, from a small child to the old people, that they all seem to be, to have their jobs and they're doing something. Right. And it's, it's, some of it is very um, prescribed in that what they will do and when they will do it and how they will do it. Children, young children to old age. Yeah. 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 So um, let's go on our trip. They're going through the countryside and they disguise themselves. And here again, we're going back to your, you know, your your training in uh, in different religions. They disguise themselves as pilgrims. And Holmes, being very tall, of course, stands above, literally stands above almost everyone else in the country. It would be hard to try and disguise those two people as 
native Japanese individuals. Right. You know, gray eyes and blue eyes, glasses, blonde hair, and taller than anyone inside. Mm-hmm. So, yes. One of, the, one of the things that I was reading was talking about this group of odd Americans um, who was going through Japan a, as a kind of pilgrimage, although mm-hmm. they were attempting to convert people to their own particular odd kind oh, of they, crypto they, they Buddhism were, or whatever. Oh, okay. It's not the Buddhist, but, uh, the the Japanese or Shinto that the Japanese were following. Well, no, but I, I figured that if um, if Americans were moving through Japan recognizably as uh, pilgrims mm-hmm. in the period of, I think that was the earlier 20s, um, that it was something that these two people, Holmes and Russell, could get away with doing because if they were recognizably pilgrims, if they were dressed in pilgrim garb, mm-hmm. no matter how odd they were, it gave them an, an excuse for being there. Mm-hmm. It also gave them the people could see, well, here that's why they're here now yeah. because most of the tourists' trade had disappeared after the earthquake for a variety of reasons. The ports were destroyed. Getting Not that into- there was a huge amount to begin with, but after for the, for the year or so after the, uh, after the earthquake, um, yeah, the, the, really the only Westerners who went there were in relief organizations. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we talked about uh, when we were on board about the uh, the mixed bathing at the uh, hot springs. And um, what I'd like to have you do is read a little bit here about um, what ha- their their visit. This isn't too long. Uh, they've been on this uh, this journey. They have uh, for several weeks, and they have learned to be more Japanese than they thought they ever would. Uh, they've learned to appreciate the. Uh, the differences in culture in all sorts of different ways. They have changed their diet significantly. They have no beef, uh, fish, dried fish, uh, rice, uh, vegetables. Healthy diet, right? It's a wonder it didn't kill them. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, they come to the uh, the inn that uh, the young woman's father runs now since he's no longer an acrobat. So can you read that to us? Because they're going to meet someone quite uh, illustrious. We ate. We drank our tea. We chatted about the journey while Holmes smoked a cigarette. The dishes were cleared away. The hibachi coals were going cool, and Haruki-san prepared to stand. Perhaps this is a good time for a longer bath. Holmes and I exchanged a glance. I was, I admit, a little apprehensive. I could tell she had something planned, something that honed a nervy edge on her imperturbable nature. Another test, but why did this one have her worried? My mind sorted through a hundred possibilities. A mid-bath snack of tiny live octopus? A horde of ninja crashing through the shoji, knives drawn? I thought it was more likely that she would present us with mixed bathing, although it had to be more than just that. We went to our respective stools divided by screens and submitted again to the scrub brush. Haruki-san was judged clean first, and off she went towards the bath. Holmes and I were released, and I heard him speak to his attendant, then heard his bare feet padding across the washing-room floor. We reached the orison at the same time. Haruki-san was in the water, up to her neck. To her right, at the other side of the large square bath, was a slim Japanese boy with a few silky hairs on his upper lip. 
His presence itself was not odd, not as odd as the other figure, fully clothed and on his knees back to the wooden wall. His eyes snapped onto us as we appeared in that unmistakable attitude of a bodyguard. There is nothing that makes one feel quite so naked as a person with clothes on. But Haruki-san was waiting. <clears throat> I took a breath. Under the gaze of the two strange males, I propelled my naked body across the boards to the water. I blame the lack of spectacles for my tardy realization, or perhaps my blindness was learned Japanese habit rather than physical myopia. In any event, the water was past my shoulders before I raised my eyes to the boy, or rather young man. It took me a moment since he too was without the glasses he invariably wore in photographs. In a flash, the entire point of the past four days, indeed the point of the past four weeks, crashed down upon me. Haruki-san had been preparing us for the experience of sharing a bath with the 124th Emperor of Japan. Mm -hmm. I love that section. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think we sh I didn't see it coming. Got a little glimpses, perhaps, but it still was nice to be surprised. You... When you develop and, and uh, lay out your books, now you didn't start in 1994 with the series going on infinitum, right? You just, they come as and go or do you have some kind of, uh, I don't know, system that you keep, you know, attached to the wall or how do you do this? No, I I think that um, I'm I'm not... I'm not the kind of writer that does outlines for each book, mm -hmm. um, and I'm certainly not the kind of writer who has an idea of the narrative arc of an entire series. There are such writers. I know. I've had them here. Yeah. But um, mine is a much more organic approach, and I tend to um, write areas that – in the books that I would – that I enjoyed traveling in, that I thought would be interesting to write about, and where something fascinating was happening in the 20s. Um, I, I think if I had been forced to stay in England for the series, it would have been a very different um, set of books. Mm -hmm. Because opening it up to the world enables me to do the kind of historical fiction that tells us where we stand in the world. Um, and, and that, to my mind, is a much more interesting form of historical novel well, than just one that um, says how, how strange it was that they did things so differently then. Right. Well, of course, the thing that's fascinating is that the things that were laid down internationally in the 20s, between the wars, still exist today. You know, you, you uh, when you were in Morocco, we we uncovered quite a bit of uh, uh, international messing with the uh, borders kind of thing. And oh, Jerusalem! In, yeah, we're living with that today yeah, in the Middle East. Right. Um, the the game takes place in what is basically Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. We are there today. So there's an antipathy towards Americans. It's quite strong in in the Japanese in this book, for good reason. This is at a time when the Japanese exclusionary laws were being right. were being mooted in Congress, and that was put on because they were included with the Chinese. Yes, yes, not no longer were the Japanese considered a separate uh, country mm -hmm. um, race, if you will. Uh, yeah, right, and they always consider themselves quite different than the mainland. The West managed to put its feet 
firmly wrong several times in the 20s right. um, with results that, yes. Battleship diplomacy was not a good uh, plan. <laughs> anyway, we'll let people who don't know about this go and read some, you know, some uh, brief histories of, of the 20s and, and Japan and the United States and Britain. And but what that's what's fun about there. doing oh, a yeah. historical novel like this is that you you read, you know, for every sentence that makes reference to a state of history or a congressional decision mm-hmm. or something like that. I mean, I'd probably read three or four different books, if not ten books, half of each, um, so that the research behind it um, is is invisible but pops up. And mm-hmm. the idea – the ideal for me is to have someone who, who really knows the area – um, begrudgingly admitted, admitting that I I don't get it too wrong. Because <laughs> that was the, this is one other thing I want to talk about. You are writing in a uh, subgenre, you know, the Sherlock Holmes post Conan Doyle time uh, stories, and there can probably be no more critical unless maybe somebody wrote Jane Austen novels that same way, you know, post. Um, novels um where they are men they are looking at every minute detail do you get a lot of feedback from people about those kinds of things other than this historians i'm talking about the the real fans we'll call them when you go I, to the conferences do you get what kind of feedback do you well get? i am i am now fairly well accepted by the Sherlockian community as a whole. And in fact, they invested me as a Baker Street Irregular. Right. Um, one of 304, I think. In now, the, is that in title the that they gave you, is that specifically to you? That I am, that is my investiture title, is the Red Circle. Right. Um, I am the third person to have held that. Hmm. And you've inherited <laughs> from someone who's passed on? Is yeah. That, yes. Yeah. They, they they recycle the titles. Good. Well, there are only so many available, right? <laughs> yes. Sometimes they do new ones, but um, it, it, they they the good ones the good ones reappear. Um, when I first started, I think there was a lot of mistrust of what I was doing. Um, partly because this is a young woman, and especially when the series was obviously headed in the direction of a relationship beyond that of stu- student teacher. Mm-hmm. And I – but, of course, you have to remember this is the, the early 90s and the internet was just getting underway so that when I was flamed by the <laughs> Baker Street Irregulars um, – mm-hmm. not, not the Baker Street Irregulars but the, the group that called itself the Hounds of the Internet. Um, really? That's I, called what they yeah. – they, They're still, they're still active, ah. I think. But As they, in Hound of the Baskerville Hound? Exactly. Yes. When they flamed me for my, you know, my daring to do these books, I was quite unaware of it for a long time because I was not online. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I mean, I wasn't plugged in. This were the days where a, a modem was a thing you laid your f- telephone receiver on top right, of. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and we didn't bother with that. Way but, back in history. You know, I mean, we're right. talking. We're talking steam. And you were out in the country to boot. To yes. boot, yes, yes. So I was. I was not really, not really aware of it. But um, even from the beginning, quite a few of the really devout Sherlockians were fans of Mary Russell because they could tell that I 
had a great deal of respect not only for the character of Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. but for the writer Conan Doyle. I think that that comes out in my books. Even when I disagree with Conan Doyle and even when I change the kinds of things that I thought he should let Sherlock Holmes do and be, um, nonetheless, I, I have a, a great deal of esteem for those two Victorian gentlemen. Mm. So let's go back to Japan and the historic time that we are in in 1924. Um, several major ships are going on. One is the current emperor is very ill, and the young man they meet in the bath is the heir apparent. What I don't, what is he, the regent? Is that what they're called? Yes, yes, the prince regent. Prince regent, who's going to be become very important in history in a very short period of time, um, but is not there yet. He doesn't. He has the title, but not the power. He has to, anything he wants, and he can get anything he wants. But he has to go through channels to get it. So it kind of, in a way, uh, limits him. But he has some freedom still now, and he's able to visit, you know, this onsen, which uh, you know is run by someone who remembers fondly, who used to entertain him when he was a child. But the Meiji period, of course, was the opening to the West, Japan's. Um, dramatic shift from isolationism of at least two or three hundred years to saying we need to to survive as a as a country in an island nation we have to start interacting with the rest of the world and there are all kinds of things going on in politics at the time which you don't get into in the book but they're they're all there underneath you know what as there are in this country and in britain at the same time because britain sees opportunities for you know, selling products and having influence in the region, et cetera, et cetera. So there's amazing, it's an amazing time historically. And we're just tapping little teeny bits of it, but very well. And I thank you for that. I thank you. Mary comes back to the, her house in uh, close to uh, Oxford. Now, they ha- how many residences do they actually have? They, do they still have uh, Baker Street? No, no, because that was never... That never belonged to Holmes. That was Mrs. Hudson's. Right. Okay. Um, so they have the, so house the house that in was Sussex? Holmes. Right. Um, <clears throat> Russell has a farmhouse that's not too far from his, also in Sussex. Mm-hmm. And then she has this place that she bought in Oxford, North Oxford, um, because of her university work. So right. they have the three. And she uses she the Bodleian. She has Bodleian, places yeah. elsewhere. That right. Well, they've got these holes, too, all over well, there. Yeah. 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 Right? What are you going on about? <laughs> Holmes was famous for having secret hiding places. Bolt holes. Bolt yes. holes, yes. So anyway, we are. Uh, she returns back to her house uh, near Oxford. And there's a, it's kind of a duplex, I guess, is my impression, where there's a woman who lives next door who gets the place ready for her when she arrives. There's, I mean, seriously, the heat is on, the, you know, the kettle's on to make tea at so I don't know how she times rich, it. Rich fantasy life I have. Huh? Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but she's kind of a strange duck who uh, Sherlock is not quite sure about. Is that correct? Is that a good title for her, Strange Duck? Uh, I don't know. She's, uh, she's an academic. I mean, that seems strange to me. Yeah, but she's certainly <laughs> devoted to, to Mary, isn't she? So anyway, she arrives at the house and there's um, um, her. it's all ready for her. It's still still weighty with comfort of a thousand books, you, you write, with tea caddy pot and cup on an ancient tray beside the modern electric kettle. 
Okay, so why don't you start right there? It was rather later than I anticipated, and go to the bottom of the page. I was rather, <clears throat> I was rather longer than I anticipated, since halfway up I decided to change out of my driving clothes into more comfortable garments, and needed to dig slippers from the depths of the wardrobe. I came back down the stairway at a trot, hearing the kettle spouting furious gusts of steam into the kitchen, but. Even with that distraction, my head snapped up the moment I left the last step. The air from the kitchen doorway was nowhere near as warm and moist as it should have been. In fact, it felt decidedly chilly and scented with a sharp tang of rosemary. A rosemary bush grew outside of the back door. One of Miss Pigeon's estimable qualities was her horror of invading my privacy. Even when she suspected the house was empty, she would first knock, then ring the bell, and finally call loudly as she ventured inside. For her simply to walk in was unthinkable. My response was automatic. I took three steps to the side, stretched for a high shelf, thumbed a latch, and wrapped my fingers around one of the house's three resident revolvers. <clears throat> the weight assured me it was loaded. I laid it against my thigh as I moved steadily, stealthily toward the kitchen door. From the hallway, I could see that the door to the garden was shut. I could also see footprints marring the clean tiles, prints composed of rain and mud, and something more brilliant than mud. I raised the weapon. I am armed. Stand where I can see you. The sound of movement came not from just inside the door where an attacker would wait, but from the pantry across the room. Its light was off, but enough spilled from the kitchen to show me the dim figure inside. A tiny woman with short black hair and the epicanthic fold of Asia about her eyes. Her muscular body was inadequately clothed, as if she had fled into the rain too fast to grab a coat. Her shoes were sodden. Her trousers showed mud to the knees. Her right arm lay across her chest, the fingers encircling the left biceps, dark with blood. Marisan, she said, help me. Ah, so that is the opening of Dreaming Spies, and I. Hope your readers will go pick up a copy as soon as you can. It's quite a fun tale, intriguing, mysterious, and you get to meet some really, really nice characters created by Laurie R. King. You have just heard a conversational treat with Laurie R. King and Gil Mansar on North Bay Public Media's Word-by-Word -word Conversations with Writers right here on KRCB-FM. Laurie is the Edgar Nero McCavity and Lambda Award-winning creator of the fictional San Francisco police detective Kate Martinelli, and writes the Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes mystery series, including her new release, Dreaming Spies, which has garnered glowing reviews. Our studio engineer is Jesse Fancushen, KRCBFM program director is Sean Knight, the administrative assistant is Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for a special word-by-word -word Welcome to Springtime conversation from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, April 12th. But until then, we leave you with an updated thought from a famous detective named Sherlock Holmes. People should keep their little brain attics stacked with all the furniture that they are likely to use, and the rest can be put away in the lumber room of their library, where they can get at it if wanted. <laughs>